stand together for the reading of God's Word. John 12, verse 44. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me, believes not in me, but him who sent me. And he sees, he who sees me, sees him who sent me. And I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Amen. Thus far, the word of the living God. Let us pray together. Father, we continue in our worship, and we come now to the time which you appointed the preaching of your word. Foolishness to men, a stumbling block to the self-righteous. Yet, O Lord, you have appointed it, and we are here in obedience, both to proclaim and preach your word, but also to hear your word, to be under the word, and in submission unto our God. Lord, we render unto you our reasonable spiritual service, and we look to you as children to our Father. We open our mouths and ask that you would fill them. We look to you to instruct our hearts, our minds, that we might be equipped to live for your glory, even the glory of Jesus Christ, our King. Send your Spirit, O living God, to work within us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I think I announced when we begin the 12th chapter that we were coming to the end of a section and we find ourselves this morning at the very end of chapter 12 in a major transition in John's Gospel. Some have referred to the first 12 chapters of John's Gospel as the book of signs. I believe that you can see why. John has recorded seven mighty miracles. And as we move into the next chapter, chapter 13, next week and beyond, we will be entering into what Theologians have called the book of passions. But it's not that the first book, the book of signs, has been passionless. That is to say, without passion. Jesus is engaged in all that the Father has given him to do with all his being. He's not been half-hearted. He's been wholly committed unto the work of God. He began and he ended his ministry by establishing the passion that he had for the pure worship of God as he goes into the temple and cleanses it, driving out the thieves who were doing business there. We have seen and heard Jesus' passion for the work, even fulfilling the prophecy from Isaiah 61, Jesus' passion in preaching the gospel to the poor, healing the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who were oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus has seen the condition of man, all mankind, because of Adam's sin the resulting loss of fellowship and communion with God. Jesus has seen the final outcome of sin, namely death, as he stood at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He groaned within himself, great agony and groaning with the decimation that sin has brought on all of creation. So it was at the first feast, or at the Feast of Tabernacles, 
In John chapter 7, we heard him cry out uh, in his desire and his ability to minister to the children of Adam. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You know what it is to be thirsty. You've worked perhaps in the summer in the yard. It's warm and you are dry and you want water. You crave to have it. How much more so when we understand our spiritual condition and the plight of our soul that we long to have our soul's thirst quenched. Jesus is at one. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. These are the words that he gave to the woman at the well in Sychar. And those who came to him, he would give within them as a fountain springing up to life. Our text this morning, we again hear Jesus cry out to those who are perishing. He's no longer in the crowd in Jerusalem. He's departed, as we saw in verse 36. But he's still in some public setting. He's in some place nearby. Some theologians have suggested that perhaps he's gone to Bethany or the Mount of Olives. There he takes this one last occasion, a smaller crowd, his disciples, those who have followed him, no doubt, present, and he appeals to those who are still perishing to come to him for everlasting life. In our text this morning, this final portion of this chapter, we hear echoes of John 3. Did you recognize that as we were reading through the text? We hear echoes of, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world or condemn it, but that the world through him might be saved. We hear echoes in the portion we've just read. Did you notice in that? Whosoever, whosoever believes in Christ will not perish, but have everlasting life. This is extraordinary. We are dead in our trespasses, and Jesus has promised life to those who are dead, those who are perishing. He is able to give it. But it is also necessarily true that whoever does not believe in Jesus will perish and will not have everlasting life. These two conditions are the only condition in which men women, boys, and girls may find themselves. You've heard me announce that many times. There's only one condition. You're either in Christ or you're without Christ. You're either heaven-bound or you're hell-bound. You're either by the grace of God living for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ or you're living as unto yourself and you're pleasing Satan and his minions. Jesus set forth both of these in our text. Verse 44, he who believes. And in verse 47, that one who does not believe. We're going to use these two for our first main heads. He who believes, he who does not believe, and then thirdly, the word the Father has spoken. We begin then with he who believes. We just remarked how Jesus cried out in this passage, verse 44. Jesus cried out wherever he was with those who were present. He cries out once again. There's an intensity, there's passion even in his words, calling sinners to come unto him. Thus, he cried out. This was not a whimper. It was a loud voice. It was a commanding authority by the word of the living God. There have been five times recorded in the Gospels when Jesus cried out. Two of them recorded in Matthew, parallels in Mark. We were told that Jesus cried out when he was lifted up upon the cross outside of Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate. We noted a moment ago that Jesus cried out to the crowd that was packing up to leave Jerusalem as the Feast of Tabernacles was concluding. 
The fourth occasion was recently before us in chapter 11 of the open tomb of the four-day dead man when Jesus cries out with the command of the authority of He who is the resurrection of the life. And he cries out and commands Lazarus to come forth. Here we find the fifth time that Jesus cries out, He who believes in Me believes not in Me, but in Him who sent Me. And He who sees Me sees Him who sent Me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. Jesus is passionate that the people should not turn away. His public ministry is concluding, and there are yet those in the crowd who fail to believe. And Jesus in this passage gives three solid reasons why they should believe. These are not new things that he declares. Uh, These are a summary of his ministry. These are the things that he has been declaring to them all along, even from his first encounter with Nicodemus. First, we see that he says, He who believes in me believes in him who sent me. Jesus did not come by his own authority. The world was a mess because of sin, and there were those who even today accuse God of not doing anything. You've heard that from your friends. You know, God's great. He's powerful. Why doesn't He do something? My friends, God has done something. He has done so in His Son. He has sent His Son into the world. And any sinner who believes on Him should be saved. That's extraordinary. It's more extraordinary than even the calling forth of Lazarus from the tomb, though it is accomplished by the self-same Spirit. God sent His Son into the world to save sinners, to rescue them, to deliver them from the power of sin, to give them new and everlasting life, life that goes on forever. This is what God has done and He is still doing. And in those places, in those seasons, when there were more who called upon the name of the Lord and relied upon Christ, their society functioned better. When men refused to come, the consequences of their sin are visited upon them. We see that even in our day when it appears that God has given us over as a culture, a a people in a particular place at a particular time. He's given us over to our iniquity and our sin. But the good news is God is still proclaiming the gospel. He is still calling men and women everywhere to come to him, even through the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no fault with God. The fault is with sinners who refuse to come, who would rather perish then come to He who is the bread of life. Sinners are complacent. They're indifferent. We've seen this especially with the religious leaders in Jesus' day and their self-contentment and self-reliance and their pride and their arrogance resting on their own sense of goodness and rightness. Even as they engage the Lord of glory, the one who is at the same time man and God, the one who sustains them. For it is in Him we live and move and have our being. And yet they blaspheme his name as they rest upon themselves, thinking far more highly of themselves than they ought. And Jesus has confronted them. He's challenged them. He has stripped away their mask of self-righteousness and exposed the sin of their way. Even as we consider that, we were just in Isaiah. Jesus is not harsh. He's not like a king with a sword who slays his enemies and thus... There and even here we see that Jesus did not come to judge the world. We see him pressing men, urging men. There's an intensity at times, a gentleness, depending on the subject. The one who he's engaged with, Jesus, is calling the sinners to himself. Jesus has come to set men free. And that begins 
by exposing the lies, a false teaching, a false hope, a man's religion, a man-centered religion. For there's but one religion that is the true and faithful religion, and it has found in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only hope of glory. The Pharisees, in arrogance, believed that they spoke for God, and Jesus made it very clear to them and to the people that they spoke only for themselves, that there was no life in their words, there was no hope in their message. It is Jesus who is the very Word of God, who has come in the flesh. It is He whose claim, and indeed was attested by God as being Jehovah's servant, the one whom God has sent in the world. This has been manifested by the mighty miracles that Jesus has done. John notes seven mighty miracles, but we know in the Gospels that there are times we're told that he healed even till the sun set at Capernaum one time. We're not told of the, the list of the infirmities, the afflictions, those who had demons cast out of them. Sometimes there's a specific account of a specific individual, and other times it's said that all those who had demons were set at liberty. God has attested that the Lord Jesus Christ is his servant. The most recent miracles in John's account, are they not astounding? A man blind from birth. Decades into life, never having seen, and God heals him. And even as that man testified to the religious leaders, he says, has anything like this ever been heard of in all of history? This is a stunning account. This is an awesome account. This is something that should gain your attention that this man, he says, I don't know who he is, but he could not do this if he was not sent from God. An uneducated man testifying to the religious leaders of a clear truth, a logical conclusion, and yet they remained in their hardness. And then raising Lazarus from the dead. The witnesses, the number of witnesses to that were many, and it was right outside the gates of Jerusalem, as it were. It's at the very door of that religious establishment that's centered upon men and the exaltation of men and the propagation of men. Jesus has come and raised this man, and, and it so rattles and upsets the religious leaders, but they want to destroy Lazarus because he's out and he's testifying, he's bearing witness, and there are those who see him, those who are there, and they testify that Jesus must be the Christ. These two alone prove that Jesus was sent by God. Jesus can be and should be believed. The Father testified that this is his only begotten Son in whom he is well pleased. And so Jesus says, he who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. The Father bears witness. This is my beloved Son. I have sent him. Secondly, we see Jesus make a statement that he who sees me sees him who sent me. He who sees me sees him who sent me. Verse 45 as well. Jesus is God come in the flesh. This is what was foretold in Isaiah. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What a name. Yes, what a name. What an office. What a mighty one. God come in the flesh. Also in Isaiah we're told that he would come born of a virgin. Indeed it was so. Fulfilling the prophecies. Born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Again, as had been foretold, God came in the flesh. God the Son came and dwelt amongst his creatures. Jesus came to save sinners. 
the Father sent him, Paul declares to us, that in Jesus dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That Jesus is the exact representation of God. And here Jesus says, he who sees me sees him who sent me. Now that's the one thing that really spun the clock, so to speak, of the religious leaders. They just could not accept the fact that this Jesus from Nazareth, a son of a carpenter in their mind, was none other than the fulfillment of the prophecies. The prophecies that they knew. They were so full of their own understanding that they could not understand that as Isaiah made clear, Jehovah's servant would come as a suffering servant. Lowly. Unattractive. Nothing comely about him. Nothing to draw us to him. Now when John writes here, he uses a verb for see, he who sees me, that in the English we get our word theory or theorize from. So John's making it clear that looking at Jesus, just seeing Jesus as they were able to do at that time was not enough. The Pharisees were able to see Jesus. The way that Jesus writes it, he's making it clear that when Jesus was on the earth, that those who understand who he was needed to study him. They need to reflect upon his person, upon his work, upon the mighty miracles that he had done, and they would come to know and see that he was God, sent by God. This is certainly what we have been doing thus far in John's Gospel. As the Holy Spirit has laid out these words through the Apostle John that we, though 2,000 years later, would see Jesus. It's not necessary that we behold Him with the human eye and see His physical form, but that we should see Him as He is revealed unto the children of men. Through the pages of Scripture, that we would come to understand that He is sent of the Father, full of grace and truth, anointed with the fullness of the Holy Spirit unlike any other that he is, as Paul writes, the second Adam, the life-giving Spirit. We see that God is love. We see it in Jesus as he loves sinners. We see that God is compassionate and long-suffering because we see Jesus as compassionate and long-suffering. We see Jesus live a holy life and we learn that God is is holy. We see the power of God in Jesus as he calms the wind and the waves. We see that God can raise the dead when Jesus speaks and the dead live once more. John Owen says, in Christ we behold this, the wisdom, goodness, love, grace, mercy, and power of God all working together for the great work of our redemption and salvation. Remember in Genesis 1, a couple of years ago, we were there, maybe more than a couple. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where God declared that he made man. He made us after his own image. Male and female, he created them. Man was made to reflect the image of God on the earth before all of creation. Sin ruined that, didn't it? When Adam disobeyed, when he took hold of the one fruit that God had provided, uh, prohibited from there and the abundance all around him he seized upon the one fruit that God says of it you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die and in so doing the image of God in man was marred then God sent forth his son in the fullness of time he sent forth the Lord Jesus Christ born of a woman made under the law he comes as a second Adam and he comes to reveal to us not only God but in Christ we see true humanity. Jesus, the image bearer of God, but also the image bearer as man. He reflects 
to us what it is that we are to be as God's image bearers. We would be true humanity if we would look like Jesus. Once he has saved us, Jesus begins then to remake us after his own image so that we can become image bearers once more. It's a difficult work, isn't it? Jesus saves us. Sometimes we'd like just to go straight to heaven, right? But he saves us and he begins working on us. He declares us to be righteous. We're declared holy by faith, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, united to Christ. But then Christ sanctified himself so that we would be sanctified. That is, that we would grow in holiness. Even as Peter, quoting from Isaiah, says, He is holy. You be holy as he is holy. For without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. God working in us by his word and spirit that we should become more and more conformed to the image of the Son and that we should become more and more properly image bearers of God on the earth. And so in Jesus, we see him who sent him. And we also see what true humanity is to look like. But thirdly, Jesus gives a third reason why we should believe him in him. Verse 46, I have come as light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. John in his preamble, chapter one, those first uh, dozen verses or so, he declares to us several things about Jesus, one of which he declares that Jesus is light. We've been seeing that more particularly even from the time of the, fest, uh, the Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of Lights. Jesus is that light. He's come into the world as light to dispel the darkness. Earlier on, as we begin the sermon, I said that we hear echoes of John 3, 16 and 17, but here we are reminded of 3, 19 and 20. When the light comes, it makes us uncomfortable. And John records why that is. If you look at it back at John 3, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Jesus comes as the light of the world. And that light reveals our sin within, even as we were talking about the law earlier. The law is illuminating. It illuminates our sinfulness with the blessing of the Spirit. In Christ, we come to understand what sin is. But we're pointed by the light, to the light. If we're dwelling in darkness and the light comes in and exposes our, our surroundings and our deeds and even our heart, there's something as the Spirit would bless us that the light becomes compelling. Life in the darkness is miserable. We stumble around in the darkness. That's the picture of a life apart from Christ. Perhaps you know that, that your life is a mess. You go from one mess to create another mess. Your relationships are hurt and suffering. There are many things that you're ashamed of. Jesus is the light. He comes and exposes that, but he also is attractive. We come to the light. In the light, we find life. And in him, we are redeemed. Jesus then is the light who points the way to live. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. But as we come to the Father by Christ, then he is the light, we could say, who goes with us, who is now within us. And he lights the path before us, leads us in the way of righteousness that we should know how to live, how to walk. Jesus dwells with those he saves. 
what we find out is as people, darkness can't stay where Jesus is, right? There's something about it that as believers who have Christ, that when we sin, the light of Christ exposes that. We, we're reminded of that, that that is sin. And we have this sense of guilt. And then we flee to Christ and find grace and forgiveness in him. Jesus gives these three compelling reasons why we should believe. He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as the light that he who ever believes in me should not abide in darkness. Perhaps this morning you're aware that you are not able to reflect the image of God in the world. Yes, you're made after the image of God, male or female. And yet, there's something in that image is disfigured by sin and there's been no work of Christ upon that. You're walking in darkness. Well, God sent Jesus Christ to rescue and to redeem you and to restore His image within you. To know Jesus is to know the Father. Loving Jesus is to love the Father. Receiving Jesus is to receive the Father. Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus cries out. We should believe in Him. And His promise is that whosoever will may come. It's an open invitation. It's a sincere invitation. It's a a genuine invitation. Jesus is still crying out to sinners to come to him. Do you need to come to Christ? Will you come to Christ? Well, secondly, we consider he who does not believe. The introduction would begin with it's necessarily either believe Christ or you don't. And here Jesus sets it forth in the text. Notice in verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not believe, it's the flip side. It's the other individual. It's the other category of humanity. The one who does not believe. Jesus says, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Notice, those who do not believe, has, they've also heard the voice of Jesus. When the Word of God is preached, there's a general effectiveness with a Spirit's blessing that the Word of God goes forth with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that even those who are unconverted still hear that gospel call. They hear the truth of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. They hear the appeal of Christ who says, Come unto me and I will give you rest. They hear that whosoever will may come. And yet, there are those who reject that invitation. Those who refuse to come. Jesus says, you hear my words and you do not believe. Jesus says that he does not judge you. In echoes of John 3, did not come into the world to condemn the world. Jesus' purpose for coming in the first coming was to bring life, to come as the life-giving one, to bring salvation to men, to secure our salvation. Jesus came to that end, but Jesus is coming again. And he will come to judge the world. Just because Jesus says here that I do not judge him, that is the one who does not believe, does not mean you can say, well, that's good and everything's well. No, because again, in John 3, lest we forget it, he says, you're condemned already. It's not that Jesus needs to judge you. You stand before God already judged and condemned. If you are a son of Adam, which we all are, then you sinned in Adam and fell with him in his first transgression. And then as a sinner, then you have committed your own sins upon sins. As children of Adam, we're already condemned. We're already judged. The judgment of God was dispensed in the garden. When Adam sinned, God drove him out. 
And he sent the angel with a flaming sword at the entrance to the garden to prevent him to come back in. Condemned already. Separated from God is a sinner. Having no communion or fellowship with God. My friends, that is eternal life. To know the Father is eternal life. We'll see that in the opening verses of John 17. What a life. No, it's not a life. To have no communion with God. No fellowship with God. That's death. That's what Adam lost. When he sinned, he immediately lost that readiness to seek the Father. He went and hid. Sin had ruined everything. It had ruined the most important thing. His open, easy, comfortable, blessed relationship with the God who had made him. And he hid himself. He was ashamed. He was ashamed and mindful that all he and his wife would beget would be sinful children. And so they covered their reproductive organs in shame and fear and they sought to hide from God. There's no hiding from God. My friends... If you reject Jesus' words, you reject him. And you reject him who sent him. Jesus uses a word here that indicates a word for the word word. This is not the logos. This is a different word that indicates that this judgment will be based upon his actual words. And it seems that Jesus has in view those who have followed him, those who have heard his word, including particularly the religious leaders. They've heard his words. He says, these words will judge you. How do we understand that in our day? My friends, if you've heard the gospel, if you've heard Christ where he has been faithfully preached and you reject him, on judgment day, you will be judged with a more severe judgment because you've heard Christ in the gospel. His word will judge you. Those who have lived in the world never having heard the gospel, they perish because they are sinners. They will be judged by God because of their sins. They are judged and condemned in Adam already. But there will be a greater judgment for those who have heard the words of Christ. Jesus said it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for Tyre and Sidon. Woe to you, Capernaum. Why? Because Jesus walked in their midst. He preached in their villages. He announced the gospel. He invited men to come to them. Sodom and Gomorrah did not have that visitation. And Jesus is saying, they'll be judged by my word that they heard and they rejected me. My friends, to hear the gospel, children, you hear the gospel week by week, You hear of Christ. You hear Christ calling you and urging you to come. If you spurn Him, if you turn away from Him, if you reject the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be judged by greater judgment because you've heard the Word of Christ and you refused Him. Come to Jesus. To whom much is given, much is required. When Jesus says, I do not judge Him, for I did not come to judge the world, He's speaking of His first coming. Jesus came the first time to save sinners. Blessed be the name of God. The God didn't just send his world one time, his son one time to come into the world with judgment and wrath and condemnation. That would have been just. We're guilty. But God so loved the world that he sent his son into the world. And Jesus walked about amongst men, revealing to them in his person and in his work and in his words the love of God the Father, and the way of salvation that is found in Him. There's a day coming when Jesus will come again. That day, 
that great and terrible day of the Lord. And the scripture makes it clear that all of humanity from the beginning of time to the end will be gathered before him. And Jesus at the end of Matthew 25 tells a parable that explains to us that all of humanity will be gathered before him as he's seated on his great white throne of judgment. And those who are hidden in Christ by faith, he calls them sheep that will be on his right hand. And those who have rejected and refused will be on his left hand and he calls them goats. And then the judgment will be dispensed upon the sons of men. In the book of Revelation, we understand that the Lamb's book of life will be open, and those whose names are recorded, those on His right hand, will enter into heaven in bliss and glory and splendor and majesty that we cannot fathom here below. I know you hear people write books about what heaven's going to be like. People have supposedly died and been on the other side and come back. Lazarus is one who was. They have a lot of nonsense. Scripture reveals to us what heaven will be like. But it's interesting that it does not tell us as much about heaven as it does about hell. There's a mercy in that. God is warning us of that terrible place where the wrath of God will be dispensed forth upon sinners and the servants of Satan, his evil ones, forever and ever. But those who are written in their, whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life will enter into the rest prepared for them before the foundation of the earth. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is coming again, and he will come with judgment. And then that day, when that day comes, if you have rejected Christ, it'll be too late. Judgment will dispense forth from the throne of judgment upon all men. we move on, let us consider that we should live every day with the day of judgment in mind. Martin Luther's once saying that we should live this day in light of that day. Just hold on to that. Remind yourself of that. Like Luther did. Live this day in light of that day. Live every day in light of that day. Live this day looking to Christ by faith, resting upon Him, hidden within Him, and live this day for His glory. And then you need not fear that day. It's a day that we long for, that we can join with John in his last words he penned, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come. Does your soul long for Christ to come? Are you living this day in light of that day? Is that the longing of your heart that the heavens should rend and part and Christ should come with a shout that we'll be caught up to be with him forever with the Lord? That's not the case. Understand Jesus is not far from any one of us. Now is the day of salvation. If you're not saved, it's on you. Don't reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, he who rejects me. There are those who reject him and they will be condemned. There are those who do not come to him because they love darkness. Their works are evil and they love their works of evil and they do not come to Jesus. My friends, do not cling to your dark and evil deeds. Flee to Jesus. Flee to Christ. Why would you perish in sin and unrighteousness when Christ so freely offers life? To all whosoever will may come. But thirdly, and finally, we look at the word of the Father. The word of the Father is spoken. Jesus makes one last statement before going 
the way of the cross. Verse 49, Jesus says, For I have spoken, I have not spoken on my own authority. But the Father who sent me gave me a command that I should, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that this, His commandment is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. That is a summary of Jesus' ministry. That captures everything about His life. He did the will of the Father. Consider the Adam in the garden, the first creation of God, made the peak and the pinnacle on that sixth day, made in God's image. And then from his side, his side, God gave to him a suitable helper and his wife, Eve. They were in a place that's hard to imagine. They had no want. They communed in fellowship with God. And yet that Adam disobeyed. He turned away. The second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ says, I've not spoken of my own authority. The first Adam rejected the word of God. The second Adam kept the word of God. He says, what he commands, that's what I speak. That's Jesus' ministry on the earth. He only did the will of the Father. He obeyed the Father. He spoke the Father's word. He did the Father's will in all things. He yielded himself as the God-man, as the Lord Jesus Christ. He obeyed the Father. As the scripture says, as a son learns obedience, so the Lord Jesus did. And we need to understand that in his deity, as the son of God, he and the father are one, and they are co-equal. This speaks of his work as the mediator. This work speaks of him coming into the, earth, into the world as the Lord Jesus Christ, born of the virgin. He then, in that position, yields to the father complete obedience, so much so that he says here, whatever I speak, just as the father has told me, so I speak. He kept the word of God. That's what we're called to do. The first Adam failed to keep the word of God. Jesus makes it clear in this passage that he came to do his father's will, that he came with his father's authority. God the Father has authorized Jesus to do everything he did. And Jesus was faithful to reveal everything that God wanted man to know. The fullness of God was revealed through the Lord Jesus Christ in his work, in his ministry, in his words. The Father's command to the Son is an everlasting command that endures forever. Jesus says, if you've heard me, you've heard my Father. And therefore, Jesus' teaching is, if you reject me, you reject my Father in heaven. My dear friends, as Christ's followers, we are sent by God in Christ with the Holy Spirit filling us with the same message. We are to go with the Word of God. We're not to add to it. We're not to make it up. We're to walk in obedience and to fill, fulfill the word of God. We're go, to go, with, go as disciples of God and make disciples of men, teaching them whatsoever Christ has commanded us. Again, a consistency to the word of God. God's word has no less authority today. We have been sent to be servants of the Father, but we dare not shrink back from that we need to stand for the truth my friends look at the world you see the headlines you hear the news bulletins you see what is happening it's as though wickedness is rising and multiplying all around us there are those who want to run off and hide somewhere there are those who tremble they are fearful my friends what is the answer in our day it's the same as it's always been sinners need to hear the word of god 
And God has entrusted his word to the church. It's the great commission, the great commandment. As, I, as you go about your business, go making disciples. What do we disciple them with? The very word of God. Can we have confidence in the word of God? Jesus did. That's all he spoke. He spoke the word of the Father. He had confidence in the word of God. And we can have confidence in the word of God. The word of God has authority. The people are perishing because they're believing the lie of Satan, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. And where are they going as they go about their daily lives? Around that broad path that leads to destruction. The gaping mouth of hell awaits them. Judgment, wrath, destruction, and ruin for all of eternity awaits them. That's what's at stake. We all have family members who are perishing. We're burdened for them. My friends, take heart. There is authority in the word of God. The word of God with the blessing of the spirit of God converts sinners. It gives life unto men. Do not shrink from the task. We dare not be silent. Just as the Father sent the Son, Jesus says, so send I you. We go because Jesus commands. We go because he commissioned us. You remember what happened after Stephen was martyred? Persecution broke out against the church. And they were pushed out because of the persecution. They left Jerusalem and Judea. They went to Samaria and ultimately even to the ends of the world. And what did they do as they went? They went gospelizing. They went with the message of the gospel. The Evangelion, the great truth that God announced in the garden after Adam has sinned, that there would be the seed of the woman. They went with that message, knowing in its fullness, because Christ had come, the apostles were preaching and teaching, they were equipped. How much more so we, we have 2,000 years of church history and faithful digging and mining of the scriptures and tremendous theologians who have equipped us. We have more books than any of us could ever possibly read that equip us in this good news of the gospel. We are equipped through the preaching of the word and we are to be sent. We're to be going and as we're going, we're to proclaim the word of God there is power in the word of God and yet too often we live our own lives as if that were not true the power of God is to save to bring us home to glory but it is also to be at work in us day by day to live for the glory of the father yes the word of God is proclaimed in this place most extraordinarily it's through the preaching of the word to be under the preaching of the word that sinners are converted. But we all have a responsibility as we go about our daily business. Tell people the word of God. Bear witness. Jesus says you are witnesses. Be witnesses. Has God done great things for you? Has he rescued you? Has he delivered you? Are you heaven bound? That's not of you. That's of God. Tell others about it. Do you tell of a great sale at Walmart or Macy's or wherever it is you shop? You find a great deal, a new restaurant, are you quiet about that? How much more the very life-giving message of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us not be ashamed. Let us be confident that it is the power of God unto salvation. It's what Jesus believed. He says, I know what his commandment is, that his commandment is everlasting life. He says, I know that. Therefore, Jesus did something. What did he do? He said, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Hide the word of God in your heart. Proclaim it to others. Bear witness to the good things that God has done for you. And my friends have confidence. God's word is powerful. It is active. And it slays sinners under the feet of Christ. This is what men need. This is what our world needs. It is time 
pastime for the church to rise up and have done with lesser things, have done with living as the world lives. We are called out to live in the world, but not as the world, and to show forth the light of Christ who saves us. Amen. Amen. Oh, Lord, our God, we bless you and praise you that we have been gathered before you, not because we're wise, not because we're intelligent, not because we're mighty, but because you had mercy on us. You did rescue and save us. And, oh, Lord God, you saved us to be your witnesses, that we should abide in Christ and that we should bear fruit. Lord, we need your church in our day to rise up. Yea, rise up, O men of God, have done with lesser things. Oh, Lord, bless your people to be done with the things of this world, that we may use them righteously. Let us hold them loosely. But above all, Lord, help us to hold on to this good news of the gospel and to press it upon men as it is the sword of the Spirit, that you, O God, would give the increase. Lord God, bless our efforts. Lord, we have many who have agonized in prayer for family members for years. Oh God, will you move? Oh God, rise up with your power and by your word and spirit, convert those whom we love and bring them into the fold that they might stand before that throne with us rejoicing. Lord, we bless you that you are able to do this. We think of our brother Bobby as he's with his father. Lord God, have mercy on Bobby's father. Many times as Bobby prayed and urged, Lord, bless him that he may see fruit. Oh God, work in this man's heart to rescue and deliver him. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. To stand together and sing 197, Comfort, Comfort Ye My People.